Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for choosing the Fired Up podcast this week again. This is Steve. I'm your host. And we're going to get into the mechanics of politics here in the United States, as always. Uh, so without further ado, let's get it underway. We got quite a bit to cover this session, and I want to get right to it. First off, let's, as we always do, cover where we are with the COVID uh, pandemic here in the country. We have 93.6 million cases reported as of uh, this uh, episode, and uh, 1,041,000 people have died from the disease, 603 million, uh, 603.6 million to be exact. People have received uh, vaccinations, and that includes people who've gotten one or both of the vaccines. Also, in keeping track, as we are doing now, with uh, the current status of the monkeypox uh, disease that is going around the country, uh, we're at 14,115 reported cases, and that's as of Sunday this past weekend. So we uh, see some slight growth in monkeypox, and uh, while the trending is down in uh, all three categories with COVID, uh, we are still seeing additional cases, additional hospitalizations, uh, and additional deaths just at lower rates than we saw uh, this time last year or before. So, you know, it's clear that the measures that we're taking in terms of keeping ourselves safe are things that we need to continue to do. Uh, we definitely need to be wearing masks when it is appropriate to do so. Uh, if you're in large crowded areas, uh, closely packed and so forth, uh, you know, use common sense, take care of yourself, take care of your community. All right, so let's let's move on into the political realm. Um, first story I want to talk a little bit about, um, and I waited a week to to voice my thoughts on it because I wanted to wait for the election results to come in, uh, and that is the uh, re-election bid for Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, Republican of Wyoming, uh, in her primary. And uh, not surprising and kind of as expected, uh, Ms. Cheney was defeated in her primary uh, by a newcomer who had been endorsed by uh, former President Trump and uh, lost her bid in you know, a, a very large uh, vote disparity. She lost by about 37 or 38 uh, points in that race. A again, um, most uh, observers were not surprised at this. They anticipated and expected that she would lose in her uh, bid to be reelected uh, based on you know, her performance as the vice chair of the January 6th committee, uh, compounding that she was one of 10 Republican uh, congressional and Senate members who voted with the Democrats to uh, impeach former President Trump in his second impeachment trial uh, based on inciting the January 6th riot. And uh, she has been a vocal critic uh, of former President Trump and the policies and actions that he has taken 
So she made a lot of uh, Republican enemies in her state. Wyoming is an extremely red state. There are only two Democratic uh, districts in the entire state, and uh, she lost uh, big time in her election. Now, something to note in that, and a few um, of the, the media pundits have brought this point to light, uh, is that you know the percentage of vote that she got reflected the fact that one in four Republicans actually voted for her, and for you know President Trump in in a state like Wyoming, that is not the greatest news. Uh, that shows some some weakness in the Trump appeal uh, among rank and file Republicans in the state, and you know the the arguments are that. You know, while that may not carry through on a national stage, uh, it is uh, something that places her into somewhat of a power broker or an influencer, if you will, in terms of Republican politics as we move to the midterms and beyond to the general election in 2024. And it's that second point that I really want to kind of talk about a little bit. Um, first of all, uh, personally, you know, Liz Cheney is a Republican, and I'm not. Uh, I don't agree with probably 80 to 90 percent of her political views. However, having watched her performance on the January 6th committee, having you know read her words and had her and heard her speeches uh, regarding the status and um, composure of the Republican Party, uh, I do have a lot of respect for her. You know, I think she is the type of politician, regardless of party, that we desperately need in this country, uh, as she has proven that she can and will stand for the country and for the Constitution, even if it means standing against uh, her own party. So I, I, as I said, I respect her for you know that perspective that she brings and I am interested to see how she is going to move forward from this and we'll we'll talk a little bit about what her plans are and as I said I you know may not agree with you know, the lion's share of her politics um, I do as I say respect uh, her stance and and her taking point on you know putting country and the constitution first uh, and party second uh, i think she can serve as a role model for many in the republican party uh, as a, a a guidepost and a direction finder for how the republican party can return to to their roots and you know perhaps distance themselves from the the more radical elements of the party and you know the the MAGA crowd and so forth, um, and it should be clear that she is intentional on doing this uh, because, uh, as reported in an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, that came out over the weekend, uh, she uh, almost immediately after her loss in her primary uh, turned around and transferred her campaign funds into a political action committee and she is uh, 
has more than $7 million in cash on hand uh, as of the F Federal Election Commission filing in July. So, you know, she has made it clear and she has set it as a goal to do everything she can to prevent um, former President Trump from regaining the Oval Office in 2024. Now, how much success she will have with that uh, remains to be seen. However, uh, she is clearly one who is utilizing her, her, not only her political capital, but also her public status and the fact that a large number of Americans, Democrat and Republican, uh, as, as I do, have uh, shown a lot of respect for what she has done and, and you know, how she has comported herself on the January 6th committee. Uh, she's very much telling it like it is in her role on that committee. As the article from the Wall Street Journal cites, um, Ms. Cheney's stature as a leading critic of Mr. Trump and her presumed ability to raise money have generated broad interest in her next steps in politics. Uh, if she took action this year, her comments could translate into support for Democratic candidates in some races. In states including Nevada, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Republican nominees running for Congress as well as for statewide offices, such as Secretary of State and Governor, have promoted the idea that the 2020 election was stolen and that President Biden is an illegitimate president. Uh, as Ms. Cheney cited in an interview on Sunday, uh, she cited potential targets for uh, her work, uh, including Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and Josh Hawley of Missouri, as well as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, all of whom are Republicans with presidential ambitions. Of the two senators, she said that both took steps that fundamentally threatened the constitutional order and structure in the aftermath of the last election. So in my view, according to her, they have both made themselves out, uh, made themselves unfit, excuse me, for future office. So, you know, it, it's clear that she has a, a defined goal in mind and, you know, what she would like to do. Uh, and there's no lack of discussion going on in the public media space about what the future holds for Liz Cheney. Uh, in the interview, she did not offer details, and she hasn't offered any details about the chance that she would run for the presidency in 2024, or if she did run, whether it would be as a Republican or an independent. Uh, quoting her, any decision that I make about doing something that significant and that serious would be with the intention of winning, and because I think I would be the best candidate, she said. Uh, and it's, it's clear there's been, as I said, a lot of discussion about this. Uh, one of the points is that uh, if she runs as an independent, uh, it is likely that she will siphon uh, you know, moderate conservative Democrats over to her side and you know, could strengthen the chance that, uh, a, that former President Trump uh, would, could be victorious uh, if he decides that he is going to run. And the indications are, and you know, as, as we know Donald Trump, it's probably likely that he's going to run 
if for no other reasons than his ego. But, you know, it, it is clear that a Cheney candidacy, um, you know, as an independent, uh, would be very much a siphon, uh, as I said, on, you know, moderate and conservative Democrats uh, and, and so forth, and lower the numbers uh, potentially that the Democratic uh, candidate would receive. Uh, and there, there's precedent for this. If you look at what happened uh, when Ross Perot ran for office, he had a very popular campaign, uh, and you know his presence in the campaign, the number of votes he got almost identically matched the number of votes that uh, the Democrat lost by. Um, you know, same thing with um, the same thing happened uh, with uh, the campaign of Ralph Nader, where he ran for president as an independent and siphoned votes away from the Republican candidate in that case, uh, leading to Democratic victory. So, you know, there there is, you know, a, a dark side to uh, her choice as to what she wants to do as a republic i mean as a presidential uh contender uh should she decide to run as a republican uh, I, I think it would be and, and many people have said it would be a very difficult situation uh not only because it would put her head to head with uh, again you know former president trump if he decides he's going to be you know a candidate uh and you know would would just uh, open up and rake over all of the, the scars and, and scorched landscape between those two individuals. So, you know, it, it's clear that, you know, there is a lot to be decided in terms of, of what Liz Cheney could do. Uh, I am of the, the opinion that, you know, her best role would be to serve as uh, the, the message bringer, the standard bearer for you know, traditional conservative Republican politics, uh, being that she is the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, uh, who was an arch conservative. And again, keep in mind, uh, Liz Cheney is a very strong conservative. Her values are, you know, very conservative. So, you know, it, if she somehow managed to, to make it through and even in the remote possibility that she became elected, she would be a very conservative president uh, with a very conservative Supreme Court uh, on her left. And, you know, potentially uh, at least one of the uh, legislative uh, houses, you know, in her corner as well, uh, because most of the pundits agree that you know, and there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that it might be likely that the House of Representatives will flip from Democrat control to Republican control, primarily due to the makeup of the states and the extensive gerrymandering that the Republicans have put in place over the last uh, 45 or 50 years uh, in those uh, key states. So a couple of final points on the uh, outcomes and future for um, now outgoing Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Uh, one, you know, she could very well play a key role as a spoiler uh, in the Republican, you know, primaries and particularly the 
uh, presidential, the run-up to the presidential elections in 2024. Um, I think she has a, a lot of uh, credential in terms of shaping uh, the at least some of the future of the Republican Party because uh, it's clear that a large portion of the Republican Party uh, is has and is moving away from the more radical aspects, uh, you know, in, ensconced in the MAGA movement uh, within the Republican Party. So, you know, her presence, uh, her voice, and, you know, her, her abilities could serve as both an aid to the Democratic attacks on the Republican Party and could serve as a wedge within the Republican Party, uh, pushing further apart the traditional Republican um, Party and the more radical you know, MAGA base. So remains to be seen uh, what the role is. A lot of it is going to depend on uh, how Liz Cheney gives us indications of where she's going to go going forward. So, you know, obviously we will keep on top of that and, you know, bring you what what news and information comes out. So very interesting. Uh, it, it makes a an interesting uh, presidential race into 2024 even more so. So we will see what happens. Um, all right. So. If you uh, listen to my podcast uh, from a couple of weeks ago, uh, I did a segment on the efforts going on to convene a second constitutional convention uh, where, you know, some of the stated goals would be to either greatly amend the American Constitution or to rewrite and create a new American Constitution based on some of the political and and other realities of today uh you know of course the original constitution is over 240 years old a lot has changed in america since then so but one of the things that seems to tie in with that an article came across uh my uh my radar from salon and it involves uh, a couple of key uh, premises in the current Constitution that look like they're in the radar of people who might want to change them. Uh, one of them uh, comes out of Texas where you know, it, it has been proposed to have a law that would require all Texas schools to uh, post banners and, and signs and placards uh, in, in and on school property, stating simply, you know, in God we trust. Uh, and, you know, another is the fact that there are several uh, people who have expressed an interest in bringing into the United States of America a secular, that is, a religious uh, component. Uh, they have had discussions about establishing Christianity as the national religion for the United States of America. Now, if, if this is news to you, perhaps because you thought that, you know, Christianity already was, there is no 
national religion in the United States of America, and that is by decree from the original Constitution, um, Article 1 of Amendment 1, where it, it states that uh, Congress cannot, will not, and shall not take any action on the establishment of a national religion, and I'm paraphrasing there. So what is interesting is there's been uh, some very, very pointed discussion on you know establishing a national religion in this country. Now, by way of historical reference, uh, take into account that at the time of the establishment of this country, uh, the founders, the people who you know first came to this continent from Europe, were fleeing uh, the persecution of their religious institutions. Uh, in their country, um, you know, England had the Church of England, you know, there was a national church in France and several other countries that were exercising a lot of control and um, influence over the people who lived there. And people fled those European countries to find a place where they could practice their religion freely. And as a result of that uh, attitude and that thinking, the founders of the Constitution wrote explicitly that you know, the government will not establish a national religion in this country. So you know, if you understand that, you understand why you know, there's been such a push-pull uh, in this country for, you know, many, many generations, probably, you know, 150 years or more, uh, to identify a, a religion that would be representative for all of the United States. And, you know, that, that whole concept flies in the face of, you know, what this country was founded on and, you know, what the national belief uh, has been over its history in that it doesn't matter uh, and the U.S. government does not and should not have a concern over whether you are, you know, Christian, Catholic, Jewish, uh, Hindu, you know, whatever religion, uh, Muslim, whatever religion uh, you practice, that in this country we are guaranteed under the First Amendment the right to freely practice the religion of our choice. Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, with the uh, progression of a movement to establish a second constitutional convention in, for, in this country to, uh, again, substantially modify or basically rewrite the Constitution of the United States, that could change. Uh, it could be designated that there is a single uh, religion that is considered the national religion of this country much like, uh, for the most part, uh, English is the national language of the United States of America. And, you know, what does that mean? It, it could mean another uh, avenue of persecution by the government for uh, individuals who, you know, are not, uh, let's say, for sake of example, that, you know, they, they ratify Christianity as the national religion for the United States of America. So if you are Jewish or Muslim or Hindu uh, or any other religion, 
that could lead to a you know situation of you being persecuted much as you know african uh people were persecuted in this country and you know other uh, racial minorities have been persecuted in this country uh, throughout the course of its history. So, you know, it, it's another reason why we need to make sure that we are paying attention to what is going on in the political landscape. Uh, and that's, you know, what this show is all about. But we as individuals need to make sure that we are keeping track of what our elected officials are thinking along these lines and make sure that we are exercising every effort we can to uh, make sure that our wishes you know, are taken account for by our elected officials. As we say on this program all the time, uh, they work for us, it is not the other way around. So you know, it, it, it's clear that whether you're looking at local races, uh, you know, regional, state, you know, in your area, city, whatever that you need to understand what your elected officials are thinking and considering in terms of how they want to see the government uh, impact our day-to-day -day lives and that that could be an extremely critical thing going forward especially given the landscape that we find ourselves in right now in this country so you know some food for thought there get educated learn what's going on Open up dialogues with your elected officials. Communicate with them on a regular basis and make sure that they understand what you want them to do. So, all right, we'll, um, we'll take our break point here. Uh, we've got um, you know, public service announcements to do and also an announcement uh, on an event coming up with WJMS. So stay tuned, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on the other side of the break. WJMS Media is the proud Raise Your Voice Media Sponsor for the American Lung Association's 2022 Lung Force Walk Bridgewater, taking place on Saturday, September 17th at Duke Island Park in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Walk with us to raise critical awareness and funds to end lung cancer and other chronic lung diseases. For more information on how to register for free or donate, visit www.lungforce.org slash Bridgewater. Because when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. Thank you. Thank you for staying with us here on Fired Up, the podcast. And uh, let's get right back into our political news updates uh, as we do every week. So, um, came across this one on my radar and actually was kind of surprised by it. Uh, this comes from CNN.com and the article uh, was released on Saturday and it titled... The Supreme Court issues rare emergency order favoring voters challenging election rules. And uh, this article uh, is about uh, utilities commissions in the state of Georgia. And it leads off with the Supreme Court on Friday sided with black voters who challenged Georgia's system of electing members to the state's public service commission, which regulates public utilities in the state. The move was a rare example 
of the conservative court siding with voters over state officials in disputes regarding election rules, especially when the court is asked to act on an emergency basis. Uh, the Supreme Court restored a district court ruling requiring that this year's elections for two of the commission seats be postponed so that the legislature could create a new system for electing commissioners. And by way of a, a background or a little background information, um, normally the Supreme Court uh, picks the cases that it will hear through the course of its term. And then these cases are worked through the system. And, you know, if you follow Supreme Court activities, you know that sometimes uh, these uh, hearings and decisions can take weeks or even months. There is, however, an emergency basis, uh, emergency decision that can be made when uh, conditions warrant it. And many times these decisions can actually come back in days rather than weeks or months, uh, such is the case with this one in Georgia, primarily because of the proximity to the upcoming elections in November. So, as I said, the Supreme Court upheld a uh, lower court decision siding with voters. And, you know, uh, according to uh, Nick, Nico Martinez, who is a partner at Bartlett Beck LLP, who represented the challengers, said the Supreme Court's order was a, quote, important step toward ensuring that this November's PSC elections are not held using a method that unlawfully dilutes the votes of millions of black citizens in Georgia. And the process of this and the contention they raised um, is that, you know, each of the five commission seats in Georgia is uh, set up with an assigned specific district where the commissioner must reside. But the commissioners themselves are elected in statewide elections on a staggered six-year calendar. Uh, what happened with the district court, the judge ruled that the at-large system for electing members to the commission diluted black political power in violation of the Federal Voting Rights Act. But the judge's ruling was then put on hold by the U.S. 11th Circuit of Appeals, prompting the voters to seek the Supreme Court's intervention. So you know, what does this all mean and, and what does it all mean in a, in a bigger scope? Keep in mind that many of the Supreme Court decisions in particular, but lower uh, courts such as you know, uh, circuit courts of appeal, district courts uh, at the federal level, also rely heavily on uh, what is considered uh, decided law uh, and uh, judicial precedent. So, you know, oftentimes you may hear comments made where they talk about uh, something that does not agree with uh, a phrase called stare decisis, uh, which is a Latin phrase for uh, established law. Uh, and that's where this comes from. Uh, a lot of the times, many of the decisions of the courts are based on top of prior decisions made by prior courts uh, that you know may get adjusted, tweaked, or you know changed to reflect more current times, and that's the way our legal system functions here. So you know what this means in this case is that the Supreme Court basically upheld the lower court's decision 
that this election should be put on hold till after the November primary when a more thought out and thorough solution can be proposed. So this could serve as a precedent for other uh, similar cases in the future. So it's something to keep an eye on and something to understand how the court systems work. So we will keep you posted if any uh, changes and developments happen with this and you know what comes out of Supreme Court as well. So in a broader perspective on um, political activities and uh, particularly political victories, the Democratic administration has uh, continued its uh, winning streak of getting you know, many of the major pieces of President Biden's uh, outline Build Back Better plan uh, passed through the House and Senate over the course of uh, this year. So the latest of these signed this week, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 uh, on August 16th. Uh, this legislation will help millions of Medicare enrollees better afford their life-sustaining medications, and millions more Americans will be able to pay their Affordable Care Act premiums. And in, in a quote from President Biden, uh, the law finally delivers on a promise that was made for decades to the American people, allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices, said Biden, who was uh, at the signing, at the, the non-ceremonial signing, uh, was flanked by several senators and House members. Um, and he continued, seniors are going to pay less for their prescription drugs, and 13 million people are going to continue to save an average of $800 a year on health insurance because the law extends expanded subsidies on uh, um, ACA policies. Uh, Affordable Care Act, the uh, AKA Obamacare, the health care bill, health care law. So what this means is um, that the law which passed the U.S. Senate on August 7th in a 51-50 vote uh, along party lines with Vice President Harris breaking the tie, and then the measure cleared the House 220 to 207 again pretty much along party lines uh, so you know it, it's it's clear that you know they the progress that the Biden administration uh, wanted to make uh, is going forward and when the uh, combined bill the build back better program uh, was unable to be passed uh, it was brought back in a segmented fashion with several pieces of legislation, the latest of which, as I said, is this Inflation Reduction Act. Um, you know, and it is definitely a boon to Medicare and health insurance uh, recipients and payees because it sets some important caps on how much prescription drugs, uh, particularly some high cost prescription drugs uh, will cost the the average individual and you know by example most uh, diabetics medication uh, can be very expensive 
um, you know, and, and I can speak to that from personal experience. Uh, and this bill sets some, some manageable caps on how much the Part D prescription drug plan members will have to pay out of pocket for their medications. And that limit is being set at $2,000 a year. And that is a huge reduction from where it stands uh, now. This new law also caps the cost of Medicare-covered insulin at $35 a month and eliminates the out-of-pocket costs for most vaccines under Medicare. So, you know, it, it, is, it is a big move by the Biden administration, you know, and included in it, uh, the new law also extends by three years the expanded subsidies and other financial enhancements first included in the 2021 American Rescue Plan that helped bring down the costs of health insurance plans in the Affordable Care Act marketplace. These subsidies are particularly important you know, for those age 50 to 64 who pay up to three times more for their insurance. And you know, there's still more that the administration is promising, but you know, a lot of these changes uh, are going to be welcome additions uh, or improvements for the general population, particularly for you know, elderly and fixed income uh, members of the population as well. So you know, a, a good effort, and it should be noted that you know, this latest victory just adds to the list of uh, things that President Biden has accomplished in the first, uh, you know, just shy of two years of his administration uh, and has, has already surpassed accomplishments of his predecessor uh, and, and many other presidents before him with what he has gotten done. And keep in mind that he's working with a 50-50 Senate. So, you know, it, it, it has to be noted that the, the, the skill of the Democratic administration on working these legislative uh, agendas through, given the, the, the polarization and split in the House and Senate, uh, is very, very, very Im impressive and should not be taken lightly. So... We'll bring you more on you know, what additional things the Biden administration is doing. We'll probably have a full segment in our next podcast on you know, what has been accomplished by the Biden administration as we get closer and closer to the midterms in November. Because a lot of these victories are going to play a huge role in how the electorate uh, response to you know Democrats versus Republicans so we're going to talk about that I'm going to put together a special section on that uh, likely coming up in the next podcast so please now of course if if the Democrats are getting what could be considered a win you know that Republicans are you know going to start throwing stones at those glass windows uh, at the first opportunity and you know this is no different in any of those scenarios. Um, shortly after the bill was passed, uh, Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin, uh, said that the lower drug costs will punish 
the pharmaceutical industry and he is opposed to uh, the lower drug cost provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, for the reasons that he states. He went on Fox News and in an interview with Brian Kilmeade uh, told him that uh, allowing Medicare to bid on drug prices would be bad even if it lowers costs. Uh, the industry, according to um, what Kilmeade said, the industry is going to pay a huge price and we're going to pay the price on innovation. Uh, and that was from Brian Kilmeade. Uh, Johnson agreed, uh, saying, quote, you're absolutely right. And when you start punishing the pharmaceutical industry, you're going to have less innovation. You're going to have fewer life-saving drugs. That is not a good thing. And he's alleging that the Democrats would use any savings uh, to Medicare from lower drug prices to fund climate programs, excuse me. Um, and, you know, when, as he said, when we talk about, uh, you know, the, the core component of the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, uh, their comment is the core component is the Medicare negotiation. Now, it could be argued that there are other elements, and you know, those include uh, funding for some, some major steps forward in uh, climate control uh, and as well as uh, energy and so forth. Um, and while the Medicare component and the drug, prescription drug price component is huge, uh, there's more to this bill than just that. However, you know, the, the Republicans uh, are, you know, definitely going to lock and load on the Medicare part as Medicare has been a subject of attack of the Republican Party for many, many years, uh, just as Social Security is. Um, and it, you know, it, it's just another example, as I've said before, about, you know, voting against your best interests uh, because, you know, there are Republicans out there who are aged, you know, 50 to 64, uh, who are facing enrollment in Medicare and Social Security that are going to be damaged by, you know, these attacks on these two critical programs. Uh, but it would seem that Republican legislators don't care much about that. They are willing to overlook the the uh, pain and and hard hardship of their constituents uh, in order to you know support and and feed their lobbyists and fundraisers. Um, after I'm going to talk a little bit about that because I have some thoughts on that uh, right after the next story, which we'll get into in a second, but. You know, keep an eye out and keep an ear out uh, for the discussion points that come out of the Republican Party and as they attack uh, these bills that have been passed, uh, you know, with basically the same, you know, arguments that, you know, they cost too much, they're not going to do enough. But at the end of the day, it's Republicans, it's, you know, rural communities that are going to feel the impact of this. Uh, so where, you know, conservatives try and paint the, 
the the people that this is going to impact as you know essentially people of color in urban areas and so on and so forth and they downplay the fact that uh, the people of not color in rural America uh, pay a heavy price for these uh, hardcore ideas that Republican elected officials do over the objections of their own constituents and the American people in general. Remember, uh, many of these uh, plans have overwhelming majority American support, you know, 60%, 70%, 80%. The overturning the road decision was opposed by 70% of the American public, but it was done anyway. So it just goes back to one of our standing uh, calls to action here on the Fired Up podcast. And, you know, that is that we, the electorate, the voters, the people of the United States, we need to make sure that we hold our elected officials accountable for these kinds of decisions that hurt, you know, wide, wide sections of the American public, regardless of political affiliation, um, but, you know, favor the, the big money, you know, big lobby, you know, big car corporations uh, here uh, in this country. So, you know, we need to make sure that at every opportunity we have that we are telling our elected officials, you need to stop doing this. You need to pay attention to us or we are going to vote you out regardless of, you know, what your your popularity is. If you're not getting the job we sent you to do, then we're going to send somebody else to do your job. So. You know, that needs to become the battle cry for the little guy because there are many, many more of us than there are you know, wealthy, you know, super rich people in this country. The problem is, is that, you know, the the money that the super rich pump into the system gives them an outsized voice for you know, their demographic. And that is something that we are going to continually need to work to change. All right. Um, so moving on a different track. And this goes back to uh, the 2020 election. And in particular, um, some news that uh, details uh, what Trump ator- attorneys uh, did in, in terms of working to gain access to the data inside of voting machines, uh, basically collection or copies of election system uh, operating data. And there's an article that came out of the Washington Post, uh, and this came out on the 16th, and it talks about how uh, lawyers for Donald Trump directed computer experts to copy sensitive data from Georgia election systems as part of a broad and well-organized effort to access voting equipment in multiple states. And according to the Washington Post, emails and other records attained by the posts show lawyers asked the forensic data firm Atlanta-based Sullivan Strickler to access election systems in at least three key states, 
and attorneys for voting security activists and Georgia voters said the documents confirmed the state's election systems had been copied. Uh, so according to attorney David Cross, uh, the breach is way beyond what we thought. And it's a quote from him. Uh, the scope of it is mind-blowing. The documents show attorney Sidney Powell dispatched a team to Michigan to copy a rural co uh, county's election data and then help arrange for them to do that in the Detroit area. And a Trump campaign attorney sent the team to Nevada and Sullivan Strickler experts copied data from a Dominion voting system in Coffee County, Georgia on January 7th, 2021. Uh, so there's a criminal investigation underway in Michigan against several individuals whose names appear in the newly revealed documents and Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters is under indictment in Colorado on felony charges including conspiracy to commit criminal impersonation and attempting to influence a public servant. So the, the firm Sullivan Strickler was permitted by courts to examine voting equipment in at least two counties, although details about these efforts have not yet been made public. And the new documents show Powell's group discussed and paid for election system data and the plaintiffs intend to provide those records to the FBI and state and local election officials. So, you know, it, another example of the lengths to which the uh, Trump team was going to, and again, this was on the day after the insurrection, they were still pursuing uh, this voting machine data. Um, and you know, it, it shows, as I said, the lengths they were going to to try and find any leverage they could to overturn this election uh, in 2020. But also, and keep in mind, because this is vitally important, understanding how these voting machines work, understanding how they can be hacked, understanding the structures and you know, commands and controls within the data systems and the operating systems of this machine will serve huge dividends in trying to influence uh, the up outcomes in future elections, 2024, for instance. Um, you know, and the, the arguments and the, the talking points you hear from, you know, Trump team supporters, and, you know, there's a whole laundry list of them, um, you know, talk about how, you know, this wasn't done, it's not what it was about, and blah, blah. But yet, the, the data, the information coming out of the investigations is showing clearly that there was a concerted and deliberate attempt to undermine the integrity of our voting machines and through that to undermine the integrity of our elections. Now, if we connect the dots, all right, so let, let's talk about what docs, dots we need to connect here. Start with gerrymandering, where, you know, Republicans have isolated and locked down whole districts in this country uh, to favor Republicans, regardless of the ratio of Republican voters to Democratic voters. 
to put a very heavy thumb on the outcomes of election results uh, in multiple districts and multiple states uh, across the country. Um, from that dot, we go to uh, voter restrictions, hours, hours of access, uh, locations of drop boxes. You know, we've talked about on this show how at one point Texas had a uh, state law that only allowed for one drop box per county. And keep in mind, and I've been in Texas, some of the counties in Texas are four and five hours side to side. So you have to drive for multiple hours to put your mail-in ballot or your you know, vote-in-person ballot uh, in a drop box. Uh, that serves as a disincentive for people to vote. Then you have, uh, you know, wide-scale another dot going through and so-called purging, uh, you know, voters from the rolls uh, for whatever reason. You know, and, and on and on and on. All of these things were a, a concerted and directed effort to reduce the democratic influence in the elections because at the end of the day, and I have talked about this on this podcast, the end of the day, when you add up the number of Democratic voters and the number of independent voters uh, that vote in this country, they outnumber Republicans two to one. So in order for Republicans to have a chance to you know, continue, they've got to figure out a way to tip the scales in their favor so that two to one disadvantage uh, can actually turn and become uh, an advantage for them. And, you know, I, I've talked about this on an earlier show uh, prior to the 2020 election. And, you know, it, it just is mind boggling that we see our elected officials uh, at at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level defend these actions and I think you know we've got to get better when I say we I mean we the electorate whether you are you know a a disenchanted Republican uh, or or maybe a non-MAGA Republican and and want to see uh, a real and fair results from elections whether you're a Democrat an independent uh, or an unaffiliated voter and just want to make sure that your vote uh, actually counts. We've got to engage with our system, with our elected officials, with our election commissions. We've got to, you know, do whatever it takes to make sure that we have honest and reputable people observing our elections, because uh, that's another way that you know they they can influence the outcomes of elections. Remember Rudy Giuliani's talk about you know, garbage cans of ballots and suitcases and boxes and ballots coming in in the middle of the night and so forth? We've got to make sure that we are on top of the game, that we are keeping an eye, that we are being vocal, that we are saying things that we see, making sure that it gets reported uh, to reputable media so that it gets the public coverage that it needs. So our work is nowhere near done. We are less than two months out from the November midterms, and it's all going to get very, very real uh, in that time if it isn't already. 
So, as we always say, be educated, be informed, do your diligence, find the truth, dig wider, dig deeper. Multiple sources of information are your best friend. Don't just rely on one outlet to get all of your uh, news information from. Verify it with others. Check sites that, you know, aren't in your normal wheelhouse just so you can make sure that the information you're receiving contains you know a an overwhelming majority of truth all right so that's going to wrap up this podcast as always if you want to hear uh you know download this podcast or hear any of our prior podcasts you can find us on spotify you can find us on stitcher you can find us on both Google and Apple podcast stores, uh, and you know we're out there. You can just plain, you know, pull up the search in a search engine of your choice and uh, search for Fired Up Podcast or WJMS Media, and you will find us that way. Everybody, please stay safe. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. I do appreciate it, and I look forward to bringing you more information in seven days.